You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah, a sermon from our series entitled House Rules, a study on the book of 1 Timothy. For more information, visit us at cbcsavannah.com. And a couple of weeks ago, maybe it's more than that, Bill asked me to preach on today, so April 15th, and I was like, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to come down there and do that. He's gonna, he was going to be out of town until I passed that information along to my wife, who then reminded me that our baby, uh, our second son, was due on the 13th. And she was like, she was less than stoked about the fact that I had committed uh, to go preach, roughly. Um, and then, uh, but I know all you new moms out there, you're, take a breath. She's fine. My mother-in-law's there, okay? So she's in good hands. But I've been encouraged uh, by the time I've had here so far. really love this church, and, uh, and I'm eager to see what God's going to do and then through our gathering together. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 12. It's where we're going to be this morning. I'll give you a second to turn there. If you have one on your phone, you can pull it out there. There's a a couple of Bibles, I think, laying around. I'd love for you to get your eyes on the Word of God. If if not, it'll it'll be on the screen, but love for you to open it. As you're turning there, I just want to say a word to guests. Man, if this is your first time here, if it's your first couple times, I just want to say thank you. Uh, I know that it is difficult to step into a space like this um, for the first few times, because it seems like everyone knows everyone and you know no one, and that may or may not be true, probably isn't, but I think the, the, the culture of church kind of creates this vibe that you should know what to do, that you should feel comfortable as you step into this space, and it's really difficult, I get that. And so thank you for coming, thank you for your courage. Um, I hope my prayer for you specifically is that you leave here um, reminded, convinced, encouraged, whatever word you want to use, that, that you are loved by the God of the universe. And so. Uh, let's read Nehemiah chapter 12. Part of that, I'm going to start in verse 27. We're going to read a couple verses together, and then I'm going to pray for us, ask God for his help, and then we'll jump into it together. I made a joke earlier that this podium, I think, was designed for a man of different physical stature, <laughs> and that I would likely end up with a backache, and, and in fact, I, I do have one from <laughs> preaching like this. Um, physical stature only, not spiritual stature. We know he is much larger. <laughs> So, verse 27, Nehemiah 12, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the son of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the, yep, Uh, Also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites, they purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates of the wall. And then, verse 31, I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and I appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. And then skip to verse 43 if you're following along in your Bible. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. If you would pray with me. Father, I think it's easy in moments like this to just kind of get ourselves here, to rush ourselves, get the kids ready, get our, just get to this chair without considering the implications of what we're doing. And so my prayer and my hope is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would break through what is really normal and routine for us to show up in a gathering like this on Sunday morning. Would you speak to us, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us? We need your help to hear from you. You speak to us primarily through the word 
of God. And so would you help us and, and, and reveal yourself to us through the pages of Scripture, particularly in Nehemiah chapter 12. We pray, ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so real quick before we jump into Nehemiah chapter 12 and kind of dig into what is probably an obscure passage of Scripture for you. So when you woke up this morning, you probably didn't think, oh, I, get, I bet he's going to preach Nehemiah. Um, we're going to jump into that here in a second. Hopefully you'll leave here with a little more understanding of what the passage of Scripture is talking about. But, but I just want to kind of clue you in on one of the ways that I know that we live in a world that is not the way it should be. And so what I mean by that is, if you're familiar with your Bible, I'm talking about Genesis 3. So what happens in the rebellion of men against God, and we kind of reject his good and right authority and his leading in our life, and we say, hey, we're going to go our own way, and because of that, the, the world is broken, right? It's, there's a fracture. It's not the way it should be, and here's one of the ways I know that. So God has wired me in such a way that I am a man who loves uh, warm weather, and when I say I love warm weather, really what I mean is I hate cold weather, Okay. So I know that that's not necessarily a popular opinion. Obviously, I would love for it to be 75 every day of the year, uh, but it's not. And so what I've learned in my 31 years of life is that if um, I would rather it be 95 outside than 25 outside, okay? And that's not necessarily a popular opinion. Anybody agree with me? Okay. Uh, maybe not quite half. So most people are like, you're crazy, okay? And I've heard all the arguments. So you can always put on more clothes and get warm. You can only take off so much, which is true, right? And be especially in the level of being appropriate. However... Um, what I've learned is that there's a type of cold that it doesn't matter how much clothes you have on, you're still going to be miserable. You know what I'm saying? Especially when your extremities are as far from your heart as mine are. Like my, <laughs> I am not kidding. This is no exaggeration, not just to be funny. If I'm not wearing like warm shoes at 55 degrees, my heel starts to go numb. Like I'm not kidding, 55, what is this? Uh, anyway, I've heard the arguments, but the thing about putting on all those clothes is that you, sure, you can put them on, but there is a type of cold that you're going to be miserable regardless of how many clothes you want. And what I've learned is that if I'm going to be miserable, I would rather be miserably hot than cold, okay? And so I get it. Like, most of you uh, don't agree with me. It's okay. God's wired you that way. I think you're wrong, but I'm not judging you in that. Um, and this reminds me that we live in a world that's broken because every year when the weather starts to turn and everything that's dead outside comes to life, you know what I'm saying? Like, the, the ground grass now turns green. The weeds first, obviously. Um, but then the flowers are blooming and the birds are chirping in the morning. There's this thing in me that starts to get excited. I'm like, yes, now I get to go outside. Now I get to go, I get, I'm not cooped up in the house. I can go do all the things that I love to do in the world. And when that happens, when I go outside to do all the things that I love to do in the world, what happens is I can literally no longer breathe because of the pollen that's in the air, right? I woke up this morning, I stayed at the hotel down the street. I woke up this morning and there is a yellow film covering my truck, okay? So what happens when I go to do the things I love to do the most in the world, my body starts to betray me. So from the inside out, my respiratory system tries to choke the life out of me, right? And I, 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 this is the way God's wired me. I want to be outside. I want to be doing the things I love to do the most in the world, but all of a sudden I can't breathe when I do it. And so um, uh, here, here's an example. About a month ago, my wife and I actually came down here to visit. And while we were here, because of the film that exists in the air here, I uh, had a particularly noteworthy allergy attack. Okay, and so no, no big deal, like just get over it. Um, when we got back to Athens, um, that turned into a sinus infection, hooray. Just go to the doctor, get your meds, that's what I did, you'll, you'll be fine, right, suck it up. But keep in mind, this time of year, I'm already on my kind of regular allergy cocktail that I take just to survive. So you have to cycle back and forth between Claritin and Zyrtec because you gotta keep the body guessing, you know what I'm saying? 
I do flonays every single day. Without, without fail, I have to hit a saline rinse at night just to try to clear it out before I go to bed. Allergy eye drops, when things get really serious, you go to Afrin, but you better read the, the bottle, right, or the, the box because it says you don't take it more than three days. Because if you take it for three days in a row, you got to take two weeks off because if you don't, you're going to get addicted to it and then you're not going to be able to breathe without it, which is absurd to think about that they make millions of dollars selling a medication that works for three days. But it just shows you how desperate people get when they're congested. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is the plight of those with seasonal allergies. Um, and then, so I came here, had the allergy attack, came back, had the sinus infection. So now, go to the doctor, I'm on an antibiotic, all that stuff that I take, an antibiotic and a steroid, okay? Uh, which would be fine if it stopped there, but the antibiotic, it can be a little rough on your stomach, you know? So, so now I have to take a probiotic to counteract the havoc that the antibiotic is wreaking in my stomach as it attacks the rogue cells in my face and my chest. Like this is, this is an amazing situation that we're in here. And on top of that, the antibiotic actually gives me a little bit of nausea and some heartburn, which I never struggle with otherwise. And so now I have to take something for nausea and heartburn, okay? So here's the point. I'm telling you this partly to complain about what happened to me last time I came to visit your city. <laughs> but mostly, and ask for your prayers that this wouldn't happen again as I go back home um, uh, to my family, but uh, mostly I, t I tell you this to drive home this point, and this is probably going to sound like a joke, but, but I mean it seriously. Um, life can be hard, right? And, and sometimes even things that should be incredibly simple for us, really easy, like breathing, can be really difficult for whatever reason. Um, and so whether or not you struggle with seasonal allergies, I think that you know this is true, that we've all had moments in our lives, and they can last a few minutes or, or, or days, or it can go on for months and months and months in our lives. We've all had moments in our lives where we think to ourselves, or maybe even cry out to God, why is life so hard for me? Like we've all had those spaces where we've been there, like, can I just catch a break? Right? Many of us probably even at some point this past week, we've all been there. And the world that we live in of this social media, right? It just kind of perpetuates this myth that all our friends, they have it better than we do. That they, all, they have the best relationships with their spouses. They have the most well-behaved children because that's what we see. They always take great vacations. They always eat amazing food. And the reason why social media perpetuates this myth is because no one posts the picture of their dinner when it's frozen fish sticks and mac and cheese. Like nobody does that. You post a picture of your dinner when you break out the big green egg and you throw that perfect cut of steak on it. Like, that's the picture you post. And so it perpetuates this myth for everyone else who's struggling, who's having those moments where you're like, can I just catch a break? Oh, great. He's eating steak again. Like, it just pushes this. It just kind of builds on itself. And even when people do kind of throw out those occasional posts of like, man, how life isn't always as easy or simple as Instagram makes it seem, even that somehow makes us feel bad about ourselves, Right? Like somehow that makes us feel bad about ourselves. Like why didn't I think of that? Why couldn't I post that? Why do I not care about how messy our house is like she doesn't when she posts a picture of like the kids going crazy. You're like, I'd be on him. Like you got to clean that house up, right? Why can't we feel that way? And, and the truth is, life is hard. It really is. Like, and, and this isn't conjecture. This, the truth is life is difficult. And Jesus even says so. In John 15, he says, if the world hates you, I need you to know that it hated me first. He goes on to say that, that since they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, in a letter written to Jesus' followers, he says, Beloved, <clears throat> do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
So this is a letter written, like I said, to Jesus' followers, and it's not in the context of our sin. So it's not talking about, hey, when you rebel against God, don't be surprised when things go bad. He's saying, when you're faithfully following after Jesus, doing the best you can to put one foot in front of the other, to honor God in your life, don't be surprised then with the fiery trial, like something strange is happening. And this word fiery trial that's translated here, other places in the scripture, it's translated burning. And his point is do not be surprised in your life of faithfully following Jesus when it feels like your life is burning to the ground. This is crazy when he feels like you are on fire. And so this is for another sermon on a different day, but aren't we normally surprised by how hard life is? I think our expectation in our lives of following Jesus is pretty much that life should go the way that I want it to. Now, I don't think we're going to come out and say that, but what we believe, and if you just be honest with yourself this morning and honest with God, what we believe is that if we do our part, God should do his. If I show up at church, community group, pray, read my Bible, if I give, if I do my part, God should do his. Now, we may not come out and say that. We might not even know that's how we feel. But one way that you can know how you feel is to look at your life. How do you respond when life doesn't go the way you want it to? Immediately, I think we, at least in my life, had the tendency to turn to God and go, what the heck? How could you let this happen? Where were you? Don't you love me, right? We can respond this way to God. Or we don't go to him at all because we're bitter and we're frustrated that he didn't give us what we wanted. And so like entitled children, we stomp our feet down the hall to the room that God gave us so that we can pout about the fact that life isn't fair, about how he doesn't love us. So our reaction when we don't get what we want in life reveals that we don't expect our lives to be hard, even though he told us that they would be. And so again, I think the way that we should respond when life is hard is for a different sermon on another day. But the reason why I'm mentioning it this morning is this, that we live in a world that is not the way it should be, that life is hard, and in some seasons, devastatingly so. Right, so I made a joke earlier about how seasonal allergies make my life hard, and that's real. But we know that in this world, there's a pain that goes deeper than that, don't we? There is a loss, a wound, a pain that goes deeper than that, that that exists in this world that has the power to make it hard for you to get out of bed. A pain that most of us live our whole lives trying to pretend doesn't exist until it's pressing down on us so hard that we can no longer ignore it. And the reason why I'm mentioning this this morning is because since that is true, since the Bible says we should expect suffering, since life is so hard, You and I can't afford to not squeeze out every moment of joy that is available to us. Since life is so hard, you and I can't afford not to celebrate the moments in this life that deserve to be celebrated. And this is um, earlier when I read Nehemiah 12, it probably seems pretty obscure, but this is exactly what's happening in this passage of scripture. That God's people are celebrating God's work in their lives of protection and provision. So I don't know how familiar you are with the Old Testament or with the story of Nehemiah, but it's a story that's almost 2,500 years old, and primarily it's about, uh, the majority of the story is about this man named Nehemiah that God uh, uses to lead the people of Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around the city. And what we just read in chapter 12 is this massive celebration that takes place because the work on the wall has been finished. And this is incredibly significant for the people of Jerusalem, that the wall is being finished because walls around their city meant they were protected. A wall around a city in ancient times meant that they could go to bed at night without fear or worry or anxiety of when the next attack would come. It's incredibly significant in their lives. And so when the wall was completed, they celebrate. And what's clear from the Bible 
is that this isn't just some religious ceremony where they just kind of go through the motions. When the preacher gets going a little long, you start looking at your watch, start thinking, I gotta get to lunch, I gotta tea time, I gotta get to a nap, whatever it is, this isn't just them going through the motions. What's clear from the Bible is they're really going after it. Verse 27 says, they celebrate the dedication of the wall with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing. Verse 43 there at the end of the passage we read says, they offered great sacrifices that day. For God had made them rejoice with great joy, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. So they weren't just going through the motions. There's a couple things here I want to point out, particularly in verse 43, as we begin to look at this and see how does this apply to our lives. So when I first read verse 43, I got this weird feeling from that one part in, this, in, in verse 43 where it says that God made them rejoice. As if it were him, he were forcing them to do something that they didn't want to do. And I kind of, if you're familiar with Hunger Games, I had the kind of the, the, the picture of like God is just the games maker. So he just kind of sets the pieces in place. He makes the rules and then people just respond like puppets. Like they don't have any choice. But when you read this chapter, if you read the book of Nehemiah, what becomes clear is that that's not what's happening at all. Right, God making them rejoice is far less about him forcing them to do something they don't want to do. And it's far more like what we mean when we look at somebody that we love and we say, you make me happy. You make me happy. Right, what we're saying there when we say that is something really profound. We're saying the natural response to being around you is simply to be happy. That the natural response to you and, and the way you are and who you are, I can't help but give in to the happiness that is created in me because of who you are. Are, and you're not forcing me to be happy, and I don't want to do this. isn't begrudging. And so this is what's happening in Nehemiah 12 and in verse 43 specifically when it says that God made us rejoice with a great joy. These people aren't celebrating in a way that's begrudging. This is their natural response to who God is and what he's done for them. Now his character, his nature being put on display, what's clear here is that this is a joy that's in them that's rooted in gladness and rooted in thanksgiving. So much so that they just have to give into it because of who he is and what he's done. And so, like I said before, with what, what, what this wall around, they're celebrating because it meant that God had kept his promise to them. It meant that God hadn't abandoned them. It meant that God was with them. And so they're celebrating this. And the way the Bible says that this manifests, the way it comes out in their lives, is that they sing. This is a really odd passage of scripture that they would respond to God's protection and provision and, his, and they would celebrate and they would sing. The end of verse 43 says, that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. Isn't that a crazy thought? That not only is this a joy that could be seen, but it's a joy that could be heard. And so we don't know what the author means when he says far away. I think far is a relative term. Here's an example. So we could be, have some friends, I have some friends who live in Mississippi, um, and it's about seven hour drive, and so they've invited us several different times to have this like lake house, this like really epic situation, and I really wanna go, and I wanna see these friends, but every time it comes down to it, I, I usually don't, because it's too far away, yeah? But then later that night, after passing on that trip, I could be sitting on the couch and go, man, I'm kinda hungry, I want a snack, but I'm not going to the kitchen, because it's too far away. See what I'm saying? Like, this word far, this is kind of a relative term, so we don't know what he means when he says the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away, but, but I think about it like this. I mentioned earlier that I live in Athens. I also went to the University of Georgia years ago, and, and I've heard through the grapevine that Bill takes pretty ev much every opportunity he can to throw shade at the dogs. Like, that's what he does. And so I just want you to know this is a safe place today. It's not happening, okay? <laughs> Go dogs. And earlier, 
I said that, people cheered. I was like, that's the easiest way to get a, get a uh, reaction in a church in Georgia. It's like, go dogs. But I really mean it. I want you to know. Like, I'm a Georgia fan. Not like the crazy one, but like borderline. Um, so anyways, um, I think about it like this, a joy that can be heard. I live three miles away from Sanford Stadium. When something happens in that stadium and there's this eruption of cheering, I can hear it in my house, outside my house, to, to not be a liar. <laughs> so imagine what it would be like for you if you were just like in downtown Athens on a Saturday in the fall and you don't know anything about football and you're just kind of there and then you hear this thing, you would have the thought, man, something must have happened that affected a lot of people really significantly. Like you would have this thought, that's a joy that could be heard. And what's even crazier about what's going on in Nehemiah 12 compared to what happens in Athens in the fall on Saturday is that this eruption of cheering wasn't just cheering, it was singing. Like the joy that could be heard from far away was actually them singing together. It's this incredible picture, if you think about it, surrounding the city, just singing God, that God's people had come together to celebrate his work of provision in their lives, and they're singing. And the reason why is because this was a moment in time for them that deserved to be celebrated. Because it meant that God was with them. It meant that God had not abandoned them, that he had not left them, and that he never would, that he kept his promise with them. And their natural response, the Bible says God made them rejoice, was to be drawn into gladness and thanksgiving and singing. Because like I said, this was a moment in time that deserved to be celebrated. So what this doesn't mean for them and for us is that because this was a moment in time that deserved to be celebrated now, all of a sudden, because the walls built, magically their problems are going to disappear. Okay, so if you read through Nehemiah, you know that all while the wall's being built, life is incredibly difficult for them. Even as the wall's built, life is incredibly difficult for them if you read chapter 12. And then verse 13, things maybe even get worse for them. So the point isn't that the, your life is going to get better now because you have this wall built around you. None of that. Here, here's the point. The, that Nehemiah 12 says that the, despite the fact that all these things are going on in their world that made life hard for them, none of that prevented them from singing that day. None of that prevented them from celebrating that moment. And so, you know, in the Bible, singing is mentioned 400 times. 50 of those times, it is a direct command to the people of God to sing to him. Verses like this, and they'll be on the screen. 1 Chronicles 16, 9, sing to him. Sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Psalm 30 says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 47, particularly specific, says, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Fifty times we're commanded in the Bible to sing to God. Not because that's what he needs from us but because it's what we need. Because we need to sing to God because something powerful happens in us when we obey the command of scripture to sing praises to our king. When we sing songs like we just sang that tell of his wondrous works, that Jesus on Calvary stood in our place. Something powerful happens in us when we sing in the victory of the cross that is ours, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. When we sing songs like that, it's powerful. And this is everything from us singing in our car alone or wherever you do that all the way to what happens around the world on Sundays, that God makes us rejo rejoice with a great joy because this is the proper response to who God is and what he's done. So when he says God makes us rejoice with joy, a great joy, 
our rejoicing, our worship, it is definitely more than singing. So the Bible will paint this picture of our worship being bigger than just making melody or singing or coming out. But here's the point that I want to make this morning. It is no less. That the command in the scriptures to you to sing actually means that you should be singing to God. That you should be celebrating God. Our, our worship of God is far more than singing, but it is no less. And so as I was preparing for this sermon, I had the thought, what if our joy could be heard from far away? What if your joy could be heard from far away? What if our singing were so loud, so driven by our gladness and thanksgiving to God that someone who lived in this neighborhood or was walking by would hear it and have the thought, man, something really significantly just happened there. It affected a lot of people. What if they were to have that thought? It could be heard from far away. How might God use this church differently if that were true? And, and I'm not just talking about singing loudly, right? Because if we wanted to, it would be easy to have the band come back up, the words are on the screen. We could just force the issue, right? We could just make ourselves sing as loud as we want to and still nothing would be different about our hearts. But if you notice at the end of verse 12, the Bible doesn't say that their singing could be heard from far away. It says that their joy could be heard from far away. You see how that's different? That it's not just their singing, it's their joy. And so what I'm talking about is our singing, but it's also not just that. It goes deeper than that. What I'm talking about is how might God use this church differently if we were so dialed into the character and the nature of who God is that we couldn't help but be drawn into gladness and rejoicing. That it was just a natural response to seeing the character of our God put on display, that he had protected us, that he had provided for us. And we were reminded that he has kept his covenant, he's kept his promises, and that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. What if we were drawn into gladness and rejoicing like that? And then I had the thought, why don't we celebrate like this? Because The Bible makes it clear, right? 50 times there's a command. In, in, in Psalm 47 right there, there's like six of them. Sing praises to God. Why don't you sing like that? If God is who we say he is, if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that, that he did all that we say he did, that this is why we're here, because we are following after Christ. If that's true about us, why don't we celebrate like this? So I just want you to think about yourself for a second. If you're going to put yourself in one or two camps, kind of categorize yourself, would you say that you are a celebrating person? Or are you a cynical person? Right? Like, if you were to categorize yourself, would you, would you say that you spend more time celebrating what God has done in your life or complaining about what he hasn't done? Like, where do you land on this space? What do your prayers say about you? What does your life say about you when it go, doesn't go the way you want it to? When life gets difficult? And so... Again, I'm not saying that we're supposed to be people who are never sad or that because of we're, we're following Jesus, it should mean that our lives should always go the way that we want them to. Like we said earlier, I think the Bible actually teaches the exact opposite, that we should expect suffering, that we should expect hard days and hard weeks and on and on and on. What I am saying is that since that is true, since life is so difficult, since it is so hard, we can't afford not to celebrate every moment that deserves to be celebrated. To squeeze every drop of joy out of this life because Jesus gave everything that we might have it. What I'm saying is since life is so difficult, we should be far more prone to celebrate what God has done rather than to complain about what he hasn't done in our lives. And my fear for us, and, and again, I'm saying us, not because I'm trying to soften the blow to you, but because I want to include myself in this camp. My fear for us is that we are missing out. Missing out on the joy that Jesus died to give us because we're down the hall pouting about what he hadn't given us 
what we don't have. We're far more dialed into, in my opinion, what we don't have rather than what God has done in our lives. So God does something, answers a prayer, whatever, and, and we, instead of being drawn into joy and gladness, we stand back kind of with our arms crossed and we're like, yeah, but it didn't happen the way I wanted to. It didn't happen as quickly as I wanted it to. It didn't go down the way I hoped it would. That wasn't my plan. So we kind of stand back and pout. And what's so harmful about this is that we are the ones who are missing out. So what we try to do is play this silly game with God that if he doesn't give us what we want, then we kind of withhold our worship from him as if we're punishing him. But in reality, we're only punishing ourselves or maybe the people around us who have to live with our yeah, but attitudes all the time. And this posture of heart, it's robbing us of joy. Again, a joy that Jesus gave everything that we could have. And we push all that to the side. And we say, yeah, God, thanks for Jesus. But what I really want is blank. We push all that to the side and say, yeah, God, thanks for Jesus. I know I need him, but what would really make me happy is a new job better job, a better house, I want to be married, I want to be a parent, whatever. So the question in all of this that I want us to answer together, it's actually really simple, but I want to put it on the screen so you see it and so you can take this home with you, is what keeps you from singing? Just want you to consider that. What are the things, what is the, the thing in your life that is keeping you from celebrating who God is and what he's done for you, if for nothing else, I think we could, I could give everybody a card and we could walk down the line and go, God gave me this and God's answered this prayer, God's blessed me this way. But if you have none of that, you have Jesus. And that is more than enough. What keeps you from singing? Because God does not only, in the Bible, command us to sing, but God's people more than anybody else, we have a reason to sing because of what I just said. And us far more than even the people of God in Nehemiah 12, because as much as they're singing about God's protection and his provision in their lives, that given them this wall, you and I have something far more secure. That God has given us his son, and through our faith in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we have been planted, not behind a wall for safety, but firmly in the arms of the Father. That's where you live and that can never be taken from you. You've been given eternal security because of Jesus. We've been given a reason to sing, and God says that those of us in Christ, again, aren't behind a wall, we're in his arms. Psalm 30 says, sing praises to the Lord. O you, his saints, give thanks to his holy name. The Bible commands you to sing. What keeps you from singing? What is the thing in your life that keeps you from singing? And so, Really, the way that I want to answer this question, or, or rather, the way that I think the Bible, Nehemiah 12 specifically, answers this question, and, and kind of what I want to offer is the undercurrent, at least for most of us, as to why we are more prone to grumble than we are to be grateful, is this. I think Nehemiah 12 will answer the question that what keeps us from singing is a heart that is discontent. If you want one word, what keeps me from singing, it's discontentment. So I think you could... Read Nehemiah 12 all afternoon in any translation you want to try to find. You're not going to find the word discontentment anywhere, or even contentment for that matter. But there is one word that you will find. Look at verse 27 again. It says, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing. Verse 31, and then I brought the leaders, this Nehemiah of Judah, up onto the wall, and I appointed two great choirs to give thanks. Verse 38, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them. Verse 40, so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. Verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced 
God made them rejoice with a great joy, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. So what the Bible makes clear here in Nehemiah 12 is what was underneath, what was motivating this celebration in them, what was motivating this thanksgiving, this posture of gratefulness to them, is a heart of gratitude. That this is what was driving them to be drawn in. This is what existed in their lives and what keeps us from following suit is that we are discontent, but they were grateful. Again, so then it stands to reason that where we lack genuine worship, where we lack to sing the way the Bible says that we should sing, the way the Bible commands us, what's underneath that for us is a lack of gratitude for God. What keeps us from singing, I think, more than anything else is that we're discontent. That our hearts aren't satisfied with what God has done for us. That we want something else. Again, we say, yeah, God, thank you for Jesus. But what I really want, what I really need to make me happy is blank. And this discontentment, it eats away at our ability to worship. It eats away at our ability to live the joy-filled life that Jesus died to give us. Because if you are dissatisfied with what God hasn't done in your life, you will not be able to be grateful for what he has done. The two are at odds with one another. Genuine worship and discontentment, are, they, they clash together. And what happens when this becomes uh, or breeds itself in us is it almost builds on itself that the discontented heart becomes so focused on what it wants that it doesn't even have a category to think about what God might be doing, trying to do outside of that. It just builds on itself. And, and really the... Maybe the driving force for me in wanting to preach this sermon to you this morning is as I think about my own life and I think about you guys, every single one of us, I feel like many of us can hear this and then just go on our way as nothing's different. We're going to get 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road by God's grace and we're going to look back and go, nothing's different. I've just been going, I've just been showing up at church, just doing the best I can, just really reaching and asking, and we're not going to be living our life. We always have that thing in the back of our mind that says, isn't there more to life? And God, all through the Bible, in every page, he's saying, yes, there is. His name is Jesus. Discontentment and genuine biblical worship are at odds with one another. And the way this works itself out in our lives is like this practically. I'm just going to kind of give us some categories to think about if you're not kind of following me. Um, so we have this posture of unwillingness to be thankful or to be grateful or to sing to God in our lives, in our singleness, because what we really want to do is be married. So all our friends around us are getting married, and we thought it would happen much sooner, and now we're getting to our late 20s or early 30s, and it still hadn't happened for us, and so we're just kind of dissatisfied, we're just kind of bitter, we're discontent with what God has done in our life, despite the fact that he wants to use us so profoundly that Jesus died to give us a joy that we push to the side, because what we're saying is what I really want from you, God, is not Jesus, I want to be married. And it goes on, it just continues to build on itself. We get married. And we're unwilling to sing to God in our marriages because what we really want is to be parents. And I'm speaking to you from experience of holding my wife's hand every single week in tears as we pray for four years asking God, give us a baby. God, why not? Right? And it goes on and on. We are bitter with God. We're frustrated with him. We're not singing in our lives because we want a better job. We want a better house. And on and on and on it goes. We miss out on what God is doing in our lives because we want something other than Jesus because we're discontent. And on the surface, it seems that our discontentment is just about whatever it is that we want. The job, the house, the baby, the spouse, whatever. But in reality, it goes deeper than this. And as I said, I can tell you from experience, if you're discontent in your singleness, 
you will bring that into your marriage. If you're discontent in your marriage, you're going to bring that into your parenting. If you're discontent in this job, you're taking it to the next job. If you're discontent with this salary, it'll exist in the next one. So whatever is going on, the root of all of this is the heart that says to God, the heart that looks to God despite all the things he's done and says, you must not love me. Because if you did, if you loved me the way you said you did, you would see how much I want this thing. Even if it's a good thing, like a baby, like a marriage, that God says are good in the scriptures. You, if you loved me, you would see how much I want it and you would give it to me. At the root of a discontented heart is us saying to God, you must not love me. And so as a result, what we do, again, like I said, we try to withhold ourselves from God as we're, we're punishing him. But again, we're just punishing ourselves play this silly game with God, and what we really need is not the thing we want. Most of you, by God's grace, in this moment, you're old enough to know what I'm saying is true. You're old enough to know that you thought, I'll even take it down to the next level for the young ones. When you're in middle school, you think that your life's going to be amazing. You're gonna, it's going to be what you want it to be when you get to high school. Then what happens when you get to high school? I got to be to college. What happens when you're in college? I need to get married. I need to get out of college. I need to get to the workplace, whatever. It just continues to build on itself, and there is no end in sight because the root of this is not that we need the thing that we want. What we need to do is by the power of the Holy Spirit and with the help of the local church, begin to cultivate a heart that is content now, in this moment, despite the fact that there are all these things, these good things that you're praying for, all these good things that you're asking for, begin to cultivate a heart that is content now that can honestly say to God, it is well with my soul. This is where we need to be. This is the place where contentedness will begin to be wrung out of our heart. And so that's the place where you finally get rid of that nagging thing in your mind that says, there's gotta be more to life than what I'm experiencing. That's the place where you get to, where you say, you can finally get rid of the, my life is going to be what I want when I have blank. Yeah, God, thanks for Jesus, but what I really need is whatever it is for you. And you have to answer those questions for yourself. And so this is easier said than done, man. At, at, at whatever age, cultivating contentedness is a slow and it is a difficult work. So I just want you to hear from a guy named Charles Spurgeon. He's a pastor in London, or he was. Um, he, he really has some interesting thoughts here. They'll be on the screen. He says, Contentment is not a natural propensity of man. He says ill weeds grow apace. That just means they come up quickly. Covetousness, discontent, and murmuring, they're, they're as natural as man to man as thorns are to the soil. We need not sow thistles and brambles. They're going to come up naturally enough because they are indigenous to the earth. And so we need not teach men to complain. They will complain fast enough without any education. But the precious things of the earth, they must be cultivated if we would have wheat, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be the garden and all the gardener's care. And he says, now contentment is one of the flowers of heaven, and if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature alone that can produce it. And he's talking about the new nature that's wrought in us by the Spirit of God that removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And now we can follow after Jesus. Even when God does that, he says, even then, we must be specially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the grace which God has sown in us. 
that it didn't come up naturally, even after God has given you a new heart, even after you have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. The Bible says the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, that lives in you. And even then, you must be specially careful to cultivate contentedness. And this is the thing, like I said, that will get us past my life is going to be great when to my life is great now it is well with my soul because of who God is and what he's done. I can't help but be drawn into joy and gladness and thanksgiving. And Spurgeon, when he says this, actually, he's talking, he's, it's in commentary to what Paul says in Philippians 4. And so you maybe you probably are familiar with this last part, but Paul says that I've learned the secret in whatever situation to be content. Okay, so this is where we need to perk up because this is what we're talking about. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And he's saying, I know how to eat the best meal in the world, and I know how to go weeks without food. I get it. I had the secret. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right, this is a part of verse you know, which, which I just want to say, I don't think Paul means in this, is that Jesus is going to help us succeed in every circumstance. I don't think he's saying that, that Paul's saying that Jesus through Christ, I can win these games, or I can pass these exams, or I can succeed in my business proposals. I think what Paul is saying is that if we want to cultivate a heart that is content in any circumstance, a heart that's willing to sing, no matter how hard life is, the secret to that life is held in Christ. That's what Paul's saying. And remember, we said at the root of all of our discontentment is the heart that says to God, you don't love me. And so the opposite of that is true as well, that if we want to cultivate a content heart, then what we need is to experience the love of God for us. And if we're ever going to be content, then we need to know, we need to be convinced that God the Father loves me. And this can be seen no more clearly than in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that if we want to get to this place, we need to get our eyes onto Jesus, off of what everyone else is saying, how great their lives are, and get our eyes onto him, to fix our eyes on Jesus, as the author of Hebrews says. Like Paul says, to do all things through Christ, we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto Jesus, because when you remember that God loves us, that is when you remember that you haven't been forgotten by him, that he hasn't abandoned you. Paul says, I'm content in every circumstance because of Jesus, because of who he is and what he's done. I forever have the love of God. That I can sing in any circumstance, no matter if I'm starving, because God loves me, because God has planted me, because I am safe, not behind a wall, but securely in the arms of the Father. And the good news of the gospel is that God is never going to let you go, not because of anything you've done but because of everything that Christ has done on your behalf. That God has you firmly in his hand and nothing can, can sway that. So if we want to be content, we need to experience the love of God for us. Get this out of our minds and get it down into our hearts that you're loved by the God of the universe. Let me just say this, when your focus is on the greatness of Christ, how good he is, how he deserves your worship, then it's not on your greatness because you don't compare to him. But when your focus is on how great you are, that's when you start snapping at your kids, snapping at your wife when life isn't going the way you want it to because you think they should be singing about how great you are. But when your focus is on the greatness of Christ, none of that can affect how content you are because you know you're secure, because you know you are loved by God. Again, this is not just some Sunday school answer. This is not some trite truth, but this is the truth that has the power to transform your life. You are loved by the God of the universe. 
not because of your church attendance, not because of your good deeds or how nice you are to your neighbor or your mama or whoever, but because of what Christ has done for you. And because of him, if you hear anything I say this morning, I'll wrap it up. If you hear anything I say this morning, I want you to hear this. Because of Jesus, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, because of what he accomplished on your behalf, when God the Father looks at you, he is never disappointed in you, ever. I need you to think about that. In that moment, when you give in to that sin, you give in to that temptation, that place where you are, that you go, how could I? How could I? And some of us, we have a record of wrong. All of us. We look and go, how could I possibly? If I say I love my wife, how could I do that? If I say I love my kids, if I say I love God, how could I do that? In that place when you feel overwhelmed with your shame and your guilt, when God looks at you because you are covered by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, he is never disappointed in you, even in that moment. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel this morning, that we need to remember that we have been given a reason to sing, that we live in a world that is hard. Life isn't the way it should be, but we are not without hope that we know that Jesus is coming back, that resurrection, uh, Revelation says that Jesus is coming back one day, and when he does, he will once and for all do away with the curse of sin. No more guilt, no more shame, no more sin, no more allergies, amen? That Jesus is coming back one day to make all things new, and until then, we have hope. We don't have to live our lives wondering when the next attack is gonna come, because we know we're safe in the arms of the Father. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that you have commanded us to sing to you. My prayer, my hope is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would help us. My prayer, my hope is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would allow this church, not this building, this people, to be a place where if someone were to walk by, they would go, man, something really significantly must have happened to them. And what had happened is that we would be convinced that we are loved by you. Would you help us, God? Help us have a joy that is not just seen, but can be heard from far away. We pray in Christ's name.